Grab a seat, if you will. So it occurred to me, uh, by way of the band's help, that I missed the most important verse in that song we just sang. So I want to read the lyrics to you, because I don't want to let it go by without saying them. Here's what the lyrics say. The tomb where soldiers watched in vain, meaning their watching was meaningless, didn't have any effect. It was borrowed for three days. It's an encouraging thought, isn't it? His body there would not remain. Our God has robbed the grave. Isn't that true? He beat death. He beat hell. He robbed the grave so that you and I might rise with him in new life. Amen? It's exactly where we are in the book of Romans. So if you're visiting, uh, we want to welcome you before we get to Romans chapter 6. We'll have it on the screen if you don't have a Bible. I just want to invite you to fill out a welcome card. Uh, even if you're a regular attender and have a prayer request, we pray over you each week as a staff. Sometimes that's via email. Other times it's in person, but we lift you up in prayer, and we want to make sure you know that's available to you. Give us a clue what's going on. You never know what somebody's going through until you ask them, typically. The information's not always volunteered. So I'm asking you, communicate what's going on in your life. Let us know. Let us pray for you. Also, I want to tell you that if you have children, we have uh, children's programming downstairs, just as much space downstairs as up here for kiddos. And so plug them in. uh, Let them learn about Jesus at an age-appropriate level. And I want to remind uh, you, all of you, that we... uh, have invited you this year in 2020 to answer the question, who's your one? Who are you praying for? I'm going to keep after this. Who are you engaged with relationally? Who are you befriending? Who are you trusting is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Who are you intentionally pursuing, providing a meal for occasionally, Uh, helping with spring cleanup? in another month or two. Who are you engaging for the cause of Christ? How many of you know that if love is expensed and the gospel is not received, it's not wasted? We still give love. What a beautiful thing. That's exactly what Jesus has called us to do. So I encourage you to do that. Don't worry about the outcome. Just love somebody. Um, On that note... I don't know if what we're seeing is connected to this in any way, but I will tell you that our church family has has seen what is for us lately a lot of visitors. Uh, We recognize 21 new members at this last annual business meeting since the previous annual business meeting. Um, I have uh, a dozen or so more yet to take through the basic process. I'm excited to sit down with them and tell them more about the faith, more about the Lord. Uh, this is so encouraging. So I just wanted to repeat this this morning. Uh, stand up if I read your name, if you will. I just want to acknowledge you and recognize you. Uh, Jason Betlinski attends our Edgar location. Crystal and Ella Klimmer, uh, mother and daughter, are typically in our second service, as are Ethan and Katie Fry. Mike and Suzanne Hightree have joined the church since our last meeting. I'll let that suffice for standing, Mike. Jonah Lippi attends our Edgar location. Angela Martin 
attends this location here in Stratford. Also, I believe, a second service gal. Stephanie Massons in Edgar. We've had mid-70s in Edgar throughout the month of January, which is awesome. That location is growing by God's grace. David Miller, Art and Pam Narvaez are here. Art and Pam, awesome. Art was playing bass up here this morning. Uh, also, uh, Brandon and Monica Schuster, who are normally first service attenders but aren't here today. Jesse and Jenna Shen. Here's Jenna. Wave at us, Jenna. Okay, she's a little preoccupied. And then Kizzy Williams. Is Kizzy here? Also a second service attender uh, normally. So let's give all these folks a warm welcome to Mill Church, if we might do that. My, my point in reading their names is, is to remind you to invite people to hear about Jesus' love for them. I invite them to church, love them, uh, continue in investing in them. Last weekend, we saw in the first few verses of uh, chapter 6, Paul established the point that a true believer, a true believer, can't really continue to willfully and habitually pursue sin. Because a true believer is someone who has turned over control uh, to Christ and control of, of their life. And when Christ comes in, he breaks the power uh, over the sin in our lives and gives us the ability in his goodness to conquer it, to, to beat it. Today is going to be uh, the flip side of that coin. Um, thus, if you are still, by the way, pursuing sin willfully, disobediently, it means that you ought to let Christ take control because when he comes in, he changes us permanently. He changes us fundamentally. Um, Paul realizes, however, however, today's the big however. Say however. 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 That the experience of every believer, including himself, including himself, is a brutal struggle against sin. And over the next three chapters, he's going to tell us about how even an apostle, even an apostle, struggles, fights constantly what he knows he ought not to do and what his sinful self is constantly pulling him into. So in this chapter, he asks the question that every follower of Jesus asks. If resurrection power has actually come into me, why do I still struggle with saying no to sin? Why is my heart still so darn stubborn? Why does my mind wander when I pray? Why, when, when we're focused in worship, am I distracted by plow trucks? Why does it happen? I mean, how can I change? Ultimately, and I'll tell you right away in verse 17, he describes these people that I'm describing as, quote, those who have obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching, who have obeyed from the heart, meaning, in other words, these people who continue to struggle with sin, they're, they're, they're not fake people. They're very sincere people, okay? And they're, they're the real deal. And I'll even take it this far. We're about to work through some of the most encouraging material 
not only in the book of Romans, uh, but all of the Bible, chapter 6, 7, and 8. So if you've ever been frustrated by the lack of progress in your Christian life, if you've wondered why temptations still attract you, if you've wondered why you don't naturally engage God every morning when your feet hit the floor of your bedroom, if you've wondered why you're not as courageous as you ought to be with your neighbors, why you don't care, frankly, about more people, Chapter 6 and 7 of Romans, in particular, are the most vulnerable side, the most honest side of the Apostle Paul that we will see. And, and it may, in fact, surprise you. It will most certainly encourage you. Uh, these chapters are so important to our understanding of the Christian life. I wish I could give you each $100 to memorize Romans 6 through 8. How many of you are like, now, that's a scripture memory program I can, I can go with, right? Um, so important to our understanding of the faith. Uh, in chapter 6, Paul lays out his theology for how to change, how to change. He says, change begins by embracing at your core your new identity in Christ. Um, in preaching on this chapter, Tony Evans tells a story of a guy who visited a therapist and said, I need some help changing my diet. And the nutritionist said, okay, well, what's the problem? What's the problem with your diet? And he says to the nutritionist, well, every time I go to the grocery store, I find myself just wanting to eat dog food. I don't know why this is, but when I, when I, when I walk in, I feel inexplicably drawn to the dog food section. Something in me just says you really need to go to that section. And when I'm there, I find myself staring at the pictures on the dog food bags and just thinking about how much fun it would be to play around with them. And then I'd, I'll just spontaneously rip a bag open and eat a scoop. And sometimes I get so excited that I actually bark and howl and lay on my back and try to get other shoppers to come and scratch my belly. And the nutritionist said, well, sir, that does sound like a bit of a dietary challenge. How long have you been like this? And the man said, well, ever since I was a puppy. And Pastor Tony followed that story by saying this, some things require more than behavior modification. Some things require an identity change, a different understanding of who we are, of how we see ourselves. Look at verse 7 through verse 11 of chapter 6. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And in verse 11, this is where we're going to camp out a bit. Likewise, you also, I'll use a word that's not in this translation, reckon, in lieu of consider, reckon, yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon is a word we've seen before in the book of Romans. If you'll remember, it's the word, the, the Greek word logizomai, which is a word that involves a, a count 
or a calculation, and we're counting or we're figuring or we're reckoning. Okay, we're not talking about the way my grandpa uses the word reckon. You know, I reckon it's going to rain on Tuesday. That's how he uses the word. We're talking about a calculation in our minds, okay, that, 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 that it's an accounting term is what it is. And so I heard it uh, described like a wild card in poker. Uh, the joker can become um, an ace, okay? And, and of course, I don't, I don't play card games, in case you're wondering. I only play Bible trivia for fun, okay? That's all that I, that's all that I do, just to, just to be clear. Um, you're not gullible enough to believe that, are you? But if you remember, Paul uses that word logizomai, logizomai, in chapter 4 to talk about how God credits us with righteousness when we trust Jesus as our substitute, so, um, when we believe Jesus can, in fact, take our sin away, when we really believe that what we believe is really real, when we really believe that, he reckons or he counts our faith as righteousness. He gives us forgiveness. In Romans 6 now, the word is used on our behalf. It's our turn to reckon, not God's turn to reckon, or Lord Jesus and I, it's, it's our turn to do the reckoning. So we are to count ourselves as already dead to sin. That's how we're to perceive, that's how we're to understand. And when we do, God infuses power into us. In other words, just as faith, we talked about in the story of Abraham, just as faith was the means by which we received salvation, so continued faith, continued belief in God, belief in God is, is the means to which we access power for life change. It's all regarding belief in God. Um, so again, we put faith in Christ as a substitute for our sin. God reckons, God counts our faith as righteousness, and then we must reckon or count ourselves dead to sin in our lives. And God then infuses power inside of us. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching. In other words, uh, we believe our way to salvation. We also believe our way into victory over our bad habits. You say, okay, but I don't feel dead to sin this morning, pastor. Sin and, sin and wrong desires feel very much alive in me right now. I get it. You're human. But as you continue to believe, this is what Paul is teaching, that you are not who Satan has declared you to be, but that you are who God has created you to be, God uses that faith, that belief, to transform you. Um, if you'll remember Paul's remarks about Abraham, 90 after a lifetime of infertility, God declared that he would have a son. He and his wife laughed. They laughed at God. Um, this, was, was, this was not just some random kid either. This was the son that would be the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a new nation of people who would be as though the sand on the seashores, the stars in the sky, who would be innumerable. You're not going to be able to count them. It's interesting, by the way, I just did this last Sunday. I was fascinated by uh, Googling uh, the, the, the world population. Just Google the world population over the last 50 years. It's astounding 
to look at how the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are continuing to multiply. It's remarkable. So Romans says, Abraham believed what God had said, even when he did not, what? Feel it. He knew, hello, by then that his equipment, do I need to point? Had expired. It's Dunsky, okay? So he believed, though, and Romans 4 says he received strength and they had a son. And in the same way, we will receive strength to walk in righteousness as we believe that God has made us dead to sin, just as he said he would. Please let me be clear about this, because I know where a mind can go. What I'm not talking about, what I'm not advocating for, is some kind of mental trick to where you try to fool yourself into believing that you're, you're better off than you are, okay? I'm not saying tell yourself that you're brave enough times until you become brave. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm talking about is God giving you actual power to defeat sin when you believe that what he has said about you is true. He does this. In, in faith, Paul says in Romans 4, we believe God as he calls things into existence that do not yet exist. As you believe them, God gives you the power for them. Um, we always, by the way, want to feel first. We always want to feel. Paul says, no, sometimes you have to believe first. And only then will you feel. Try letting your feelings get you out of bed to spend time alone with God every morning and see how that goes. We can't be led by our feelings. It begins with discipline. Those feelings come much later after you've established a habit. So we always want to feel first. Paul says, nope, you've got to believe. So there's power God gives when we demonstrate faith. This is why, by the way, Satan began each of his temptations of Jesus in the wilderness with these words. If you really are the son of God, what was he attacking? Jesus' identity. His thoughts about who he was. If you are really the son of God, Satan's planting a seed in the mind of Jesus. Isn't it kind of an odd way to start a temptation? Listen to what the father declared about Jesus just before at his baptism. You are my beloved son. That's who you are, Jesus Christ. You are my beloved son in whom I am what? well-pleased, in whom I'm well-pleased. That's the confidence that Jesus took into the temptation in the desert. First thing Satan attacked was Jesus' identity. Satan knew if he could weaken Jesus' identity, his thoughts about who he was or wasn't in the Father, he would weaken Jesus at his core. He would make him susceptible to sin. So before Satan brings any temptation of materialism or pride or lust of the flesh, he starts with, are you really the beloved son of God? Is Jesus, is, is the father really pleased with you? Really? That's still Satan's pattern. You ever notice that? Satan will do whatever he can to take your 
eyes off of the identity that the Father has given you. He will bring up your past sins. He will bring up your present sins. He will whisper, do you really think, do you really think that you're a beloved child of God? Look what you just did. Look what you've done. Look what you've thought. Do you, do you remember how badly you screwed that up? Do you remember how many times you have relapsed? Do you remember? Can you even count how many times you've gone back to the well of that same sin? You're the king of relapse. You're the queen of relapse. You're slipping. You cave. Time and again, you cave. You might as well go ahead and plan to do it. Just keep doing it. I mean, if God forgave all the other instances, surely he'll forgive this one. One more won't hurt. And at the moment, you start, if you start believing that, Satan has you. He has you because he's taken your eyes off of what Satan, he is doing, and he's put them onto what you have done. So the power of Christian life begins by believing what God has declared about us, even though this feels impossible. You are fully righteous in his sight because of the work of at the cross. You say, but I don't, I don't have a righteous record. I don't feel righteous. Again, that's not what God bases his declaring of you righteous on. He has righteousness over you based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not on your success. Amen? We don't have much of that, frankly. Verse 12. All right. Let not, therefore, sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God, your body, your flesh to God, as instruments for righteousness. And then Paul says, For sin will not or cannot rule over you or have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but you're under what? grace. In other words, even though sin can't rule over you, um, excuse me, let, me, let me jump back. Sin cannot rule over you because you are, you have received Christ Jesus into yourself. Um, Jesus took the place of, of the center of power at your heart. Um, thus, sin can no longer hold you captive. Before you received Christ, sin held you captive. We read it in Romans 1. Paul said that literally we were given over to sin, which means we could not stop sinning. We could not. But that's not true anymore, Paul says, because Jesus rules at the sinner with the power of the resurrection. Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. But even though that's true, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. 
In other words, even though sin cannot rule over you, it can still harass you. It absolutely can. Think of it like this. When the Allied forces took control of Berlin in World War II, news spread throughout the countryside that the Axis countries had broken apart, that that the war had been won by the Allies. Even so, there were still pockets of German soldiers running amok and creating havoc in the rural places. The war has been won, but sin can still wreak havoc. Christ has broken sin's control. He now sits in the seat of power, but sin still exists. It can in the margins, and if you stop fighting it, it will slowly and methodically work its, back, its way back in into pockets of power in your life. Um, real quick, before we explore what some of those things uh, might be, I don't even know that I'll get into that as much today, but I, I know this slavery analogy may be difficult in today's day and age, so I just want to clarify something. Um, the slavery Paul would have referred to here would have been indentured servanthood, even though he uses the word slavery. It's still not a great economic system, please understand, um, but it's not the injustice of kidnapping someone against their will. It's not the injustice of forced labor along ethnic lines. That's not what indentured servanthood is. And I want you to know that that's what he's referring to. Paul makes clear in places like 1 Timothy 1 that slavery is categorically wrong in the New Testament. Second, Paul is just using an analogy. He's not promoting some economic system. He even says so. I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh in verse 19. In other words, in, in other words to help you understand what I'm about to say, I'm going to use an analogy. So don't let the analogy throw you. The point is this. Sin works to enslave. I'm going to stick with the analogy. Sin works to enslave. Sin is a captor. Sin is a predator. A sin is always working for control of our lives. Some of you think that you can play with it, entertain it, casually meddle in it harmlessly. That you can make subtle compromises and that it will not affect your life. Wrong. Wrong. It'll continue to work for mastery. It reminds me of when you read some story in the, in the news. Florida man suffocates uh, from pet python named Fluffy. Fluffy was great. Fluffy was awesome for years. Fluffy hung ar around his neck. They were affectionate toward each other. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, in a moment, Fluffy turns on the guy, goes taut around his neck, and he drops dead. And the family is all surprised. Oh, but Fluffy was always so gentle and sweet. Yeah, but it's not rocket science, right? Fluffy is a predator. And if you choose to have a predator in close proximity to yourself, you're always at risk. At some point, you will be turned upon and eaten. That's how it works. In other words, sin is by nature a predator. 
There's no casual entertaining of it. If you entertain sin, you are courting disaster. Nobody wakes up and says, today I'm going to ruin my life. I can't wait. I'm going to start an addiction today. I'm going to throw away my marriage, my kids, my career. Nobody says that. It's the subtlety of sin that dictates that path. No one says, today I'm going to begin lying to everybody I know. What a thrilling new way to live. Today is the day I begin committing tax fraud. Let's celebrate. I'm going to put some turbo into my tax situation. Today is the day I get someone pregnant before marriage. Yes! Sin starts slowly, incrementally, subtly. That's why John Owen said, you must be killing sin or sin will be what? Killing you. Look closely at what Paul says, Romans 6. But don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are going to become slave of the one that you obey? Paul's saying, don't make the mistake of thinking it's cool when I sin. I'm only doing what I want to do. I'm not becoming anything or becoming anybody's slave. Paul would say, actually, you're not thinking about it deeply enough. Behind every choice you make is this calculation. I'm going to do this, and this is going to make me happy. It's the principle Paul taught in Romans. Everybody is a worshiper of something. Everybody at their core worships, is driven to worship. And, and even if you're an atheist or agnostic here, I love when we have atheists or agnostics visit and listen in. And I would, I would say, um, or who would say maybe an atheist or agnostic, I'm not religious, so I don't worship anything or anyone. Wrong. To worship something is to attach ultimate value to it. It's something you determine that you have to have to be happy. You can worship anything. It just it doesn't have to be a God. Something that, that life is just not worth living. If I don't have whatever that is, Paul is saying that controls your behavior because you'll do whatever you need to do to keep that thing or to get that thing. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with many of those things in and of themselves. Please understand that. It's when they become central to your life, the seat, the sum, something you can't live without that compels your obedience, even over what God wants. That is a wicked thing. Turn to your neighbor and say this. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. One more time. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. People stack up, think about it, desire on top of desire on top of desire until it's so weighty it controls their heart. 
So you start thinking, if I can make a certain amount of money, we, we all make money, that's fine. But you start thinking, with this level of money, unless I achieve this level of money, I cannot be happy. Without this level of income, I will live a second-class life. Or I want a family, and if I can't have that, well, life is not even worth living. So I'm just going to be miserable all the time if I can't have a family. Or I want to be noticed. I want my coworkers to notice me, my boss, my husband, my children, to recognize me, to commend me. If not, I'm going to nurse resentment toward those people that don't appreciate me. If I really, really want a boyfriend, and so I'm going to, I'm going to compromise every standard I have just to have somebody with me. Nothing wrong with these things in the right context, but when they become your masters, Paul's saying they lead you toward death. He says, look around, everybody's serving somebody. Make no mistake about it. Um, You gotta serve somebody. Or was that Bob Dylan that said that? But Paul said it too. I'll conclude this verse from chapter three. For the wages of sin, Paul says, is what? The wages of sin is death. We know this verse. We always use it for a short explanation to salvation. It's quick, it's easy, that's appropriate, that's good. But the context is actually not salvation. The context is a description of what happens in our lives when we allow sin to gain dominance. The wages of sin is what? Death. We start to experience death. And in Romans, death and life aren't just some afterlife options. They're things we experience in the now. Here, in this life, we experience death and life. The more you allow sin to control you, the more that you will experience some kind of living death. Uh, I'll conclude with this story. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied with sin. Um, In Jacksonville, Florida, they have, I've read, a local greyhound track. Okay, it's dog racing. All right? The most interesting part, is that before the race starts, they bring this fake rabbit out named Rusty. And, and the announcer goes, here's Rusty! And all the dogs start going crazy in their cages, eager to run, banging against the side of it, can't wait to get out. And the dogs get pumped. And, and they let them out, and they start tearing around corners like Daytona 500, trying to get Rusty the rabbit. And they get all the way to the end of the track, and all of a sudden, the rabbit disappears. They take it away. And later in the kennel, the dogs are like, you know, I used to have a dog named Hickory Nut, and I would pretend like he's talking to me. It was kind of fun. It was just a weird little quirk we had together in our relationship. And, you know, oh, I was so close this time. <laughs> you know? The other one would say, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I was so close to Rusty the Rabbit. Yeah, you know, and, and they just have this conversation. And the friends are like, gosh, me too. You know, I don't know. And sure enough, the next day, there's, there, there's, there he is again, and he's back. And they chase him around the track again. And they will do this for days and months and years on end. And, and we say, gosh, what a dumb dog. They never get the rabbit. What a dumb dog. And every day, every day, our alarm goes off. And it's almost like we can hear someone saying, here's Rusty. And we chase the same things that we've been chasing all of our lives, thinking they're going to satisfy us. The saddest thing is when the dog actually catches the rabbit, they chew through it, 
and realize it's not really a rabbit. And only at that point does the dog go, hey, I've been duped. And at that point, the dog will actually lose its motivation to run. True story. It clicks. And that's where I believe some of you are, by God's grace. I hope you're at a place that you've found what you've always wanted to catch. And you've determined that it still leaves you wanting because it's a fake rabbit. If you've spent all of your life chasing Rusty and, and you've caught him, you got the car or you moved into the house or you got the corner office and it left you unsatisfied in some ways. Again, we're dumber than the dog because we think, well, well, this, this Rusty is not what I thought it would be, but surely there's, there's another Rusty. There's another, there's another real rabbit out there somewhere. And Paul says, verse 21, so what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. Paul says, you see where that sin led you? Why do you keep chasing Rusty? Why do you keep going back to that sin? It's promising some kind of exhilarating freedom and you continue to be let down. It's always like the freedom of the fish in hopping out of water. Something good is promised until they're flopping on the table. But the free gift of God, he says, is in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's another master, Paul says, who actually gives you life, and he is what your soul has been looking for. I will, start, I will stop short of calling the creator of the universe the real rabbit, okay? I won't, I won't carry the, the illustration that far, but I'll tell you he's the real thing. Pascal, the philosopher, said there's a God-sized shaped hole in all of us, and we try to stuff it with anything and everything that's not God-shaped. And we'll only be satisfied when we put the God-shaped thing, that is God, into the God-shaped hole. Every other master but God threatens. If you don't work for me, I'll make you miserable. Money says, if you fail to obtain me, you'll be unhappy. Relationships say, if you don't find the right person, you'll be miserable. Materialism says, if you aren't pretty enough or skinny enough or drive the right kind of car, I'll make you lonely and miserable. And God says, I give you my joy and my blessing as a gift. You don't have to earn it. Mine is not a wage. It's free. Jesus is so much better than any master. And I promise you that hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. When you arrive in heaven, will be far greater than anything you have ever dreamed of attaining in this world. Amen? Father, I just pray that you'd move us, change us, Shake us, empower us to live victorious over sin. Paul declares it's possible if we know who we are in you. Let us believe it in Jesus' name. Amen.